This episode is brought to you by Vertera Dinnerware. Learn more at Vertera.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're rounding second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's June 2020, and we're talking about Summer Membership Drive. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Um, a few months ago, um, I was talking to my friend Amy Halloran, who some of you know as uh, the flower ambassador. And we go way back, we, we've talked a lot about regional grains and the connection with malt and the importance of, of, of malt and grains in the food system. And Amy, I just want to say hello. Uh, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Jenny. I'm always so happy to talk about flour. Yeah, we, we've had some really interesting shows. We've uh, covered quite, quite, quite a few bases um, talking about grains. And, and to, for me, is how it relates to malt. And I'm always curious about, you know, what came first? Was it beer or bread in the world of grains? And I think in this show, we're going to dive a little bit into... Uh, grain and and milling history. Um, So it was about a couple weeks ago, our friends at River Valley Grains in New Jersey published some photos. Um, Some old, what was it, 18th century millstones were discovered, a a, a trove of them, in in the waters of of New Jersey. And um, we started chatting about the history of the importance of mills. So just, just tell us, like, how you jumped from that. You know, mills were in Hudson Valley in the times of the Revolutionary War, they were considered a strategic resource. And, you know, during the time of COVID, you know, people were saying, oh, the supermarkets don't have flour, but we know that it's just that the, the way they were shipped and, 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 and distributed wasn't really, you know, wasn't what was the issue. But this whole regional grains thing is, is your baby. So let's just, let's jump in with that, Amy, and um, then we'll introduce everybody else. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how, um, amazing and unfortunate, I'm not, I wish that the people would have come to discovering regional mills and their capacity to really feed us without a terrible public health disaster that has really um, upset more than our food chain. But here we are. And uh, small flour mills that are kind of a, a niche and the last sector of the local food systems to get revived really 
delivered flour when the big flour mills couldn't. Um, the big flour mills were used to delivering to food service and they just simply didn't have the capacity to switch gears to everyone wanting a five pound bag of flour all of a sudden. There, was, there just wasn't anything like that in history. For the last 10 or 15 years, people have gotten away from baking flour for the anti-gluten phase craze and also um, for the ease of mixes. So gluten-free and baking mixes have really taken off and a lot of mills have their capacity, not, not the small mills that I tend to write about, but a lot of uh, standard flour milling goes for mixes. It doesn't go for a five pound bag of flour that you put on your shelf, but all of a sudden everybody needed it like it was the, you know, the latest record in the 1970s and they had to get it. Um, and the small flour mills really performed. So it's been an incredible moment and for regional flour. And I've always been interested in the history of how flour got, got out of the region because it wasn't like when uh, white settlers came to New England and New Amsterdam, they, uh, they were getting their flour from the Midwest or the Great Plains. They were not opened up by um, yet. Flour always has to be from somewhere. All of our food is from somewhere. And until recently, I've understood the way that grains left our regions um, as sort of a, uh, a very white version of, of what happened. So the people, uh, people brought wheat and barley with them, wheat, barley, and rye from Europe. These grains are not native to America. Corn is the only grain that is native to America. Quinoa is, but it's a pseudo cereal. So these, these grains got brought over and um, people had mills as soon as possible because you're going to eat your staple crop. And like Jimmy said, during the revolution, New York was the breadbasket. During the Civil War, Maine and New York were breadbaskets for the Union Army. Uh, the Erie Canal sh was the first piece of technology that shifted grain production out of the Hudson Valley and out of New York, um, out of New England, to open up Western New York. Our, one of our first really big grain belts in America was Western New York. And then transportation and technology just kept opening things up further and further. And the history that I read as I was re researching my book, The New Bread Basket, the history that I read told a story of transportation and technology opening up America and then the Great Plains and these grain belts were opened. And the innovations in uh, plowing such as McCormick's Reaper they enabled it. It was very much a story of inventions and innovation and the way that history is written, it doesn't include how uh, slavery plays within everything else. So now I'm having to relearn everything because I was lucky enough 
to meet Lavada Nahan, uh, another guest here Jimmy's going to introduce in a second, at a presentation she gave at Hudson Valley Community College. Um, and it really cracked the egg of my brain. And I said, okay, what do I read? I went up after the talk and you said to start with the island at the center of the world. And I began reading that and now I'm on to some other texts, but I think it's a good time to uh, have have you introduce Levada. Thank you, Amy. So Levada, yeah, now, now it comes to you. So when we were looking at these millstones that, that were discovered in New Jersey, you know, we started talking about the colonial era in New York in the mid-Atlantic. So tell us your journey as a food historian, a little bit of your backstory and, and some of the, the research you've done. Well, um, first, thanks for having me here. Um, my backstory, I've been um, a book geek all my life and a history geek all my life and a food geek all my life. And it around 24, I moved to New York. And I was living blocks away from the Brooklyn Museum, and I started volunteering there. And upstairs are some historic rooms, and most of those rooms were from 17th and 18th century Dutch houses. From there, and asking um, the people at the museum what was up, I started really getting into the history of New York and studying enslavement and studying food, because you can do it all of it together. And it has gone from there. I've been a professional historian for a little over 20 years, and I'm from the public history side. I work in museums. I'm not an academic. I'm, I'm an academic in the sense that I have to study for my job and for my work. And I specialize in the work of the enslaved cooks from the 17th through the 19th century. So there's a lot of clarification that needs to happen around food in our area. But I noticed that you began with the revolutionary period, which I find interesting, but that's very common. The thing that has uh, hidden the early part of the history around mills and wheat and all of that in our area, and even beer, was because those initial documents were in Dutch and people didn't read the language. So from an educational standpoint, they jumped uh, the Mid-Atlantic into the north and made us all British. Uh, and it's only within the last 30 years with the work of Dr. Chair, uh, Charles Gehring from New Netherland Institute and the State Library and the archives that we've been able to translate a lot of this work into English and get an understanding of the early mills and um, the economy of the early part of the area that will ultimately become New York. So give us some examples because, you know, obviously you needed mills to have food security and there are people working in them. Um, just a couple anecdotes or in introductions for us. It's not even about food security. It's about money. You know, we forget our region was started by a company, the Dutch West India Company, that celebrates its, I think, 400th anniversary of founding next year in 2021. And the, the trading out of our area started as fur until we took the fur-bearing animals, like the beaver, almost to extinction. So the company needed another product to put on the market. And it was at a time when um, the sugar plantations that the Dutch owned in Brazil and Suriname and other parts of the world were happening, and they needed a straight-up product. And that product became one of their stable foods, which was wheat. 
and uh, beer from the very beginning. The breweries, we have uh, maps from the 17th century that show lower Manhattan would literally label the breweries and um, coming out of Westchester stuff, you have the wheat fields. And it is common currency, not only within the colony, but around the world is a shuffle of wheat from the Dutch. And so mills are everywhere. So they immediately are building mills on, you know, and we are, you know, off the Hudson River, you have all these estuaries and on every one, there's a grist mill or a saw mill because we've got trees and once those trees are out of the way, we've got land for planting grain. And that grain then, um, I mean, we're speaking of it with the Erie Canal opening up, going everywhere. But before the Revolutionary War, all of from West of what is today Westchester County, which was then Phillipsburg Manor, a 52,000 acre provisioning plantation where the tenants grew wheat. And the labor that the tenants had to help them were enslaved Africans. And that happens from all the way up until above Albany. And then once Western New York opens up after the Revolutionary War, because the land has been exhausted, uh, the early colonists are not doing anything around crop rotation or soil augmentation. So when the fertile lands of the West open up, they just start growing wheat up there. Because you have to have bread. I mean, the Dutch have bread and cheese. That's It's like ever. And their main drink is beer. And you ask what came first, the beer or the bread? <laughs> How far back do you want to go? Because, in fact, we have risen bread because in Egypt, the bakeries were right next to the breweries. So you have to have yeast coming from somewhere, and brewer's yeast is the yeast that is used all in cake baking and bread baking all through the colonial period. Or you have to make your own yeast as like some version of what we now call a sourdough. Wow. That's a great start, Levada. And let's go to Brian. So, Brian, you have a great book out now, a sourdough book. Um, and I've been following your posts about your banana foster sourdough flambe, banana foster sourdough French toast. Just tell us how, how you started getting into, into bread and uh, in the, this context. Well, yeah, I mean, first, uh, I kind of want to say that I'm, I'm just so honored to be here and to, and to listen to Lavada and Amy, um, just so much knowledge and information. And I'm, I'm just so new to the, to the game in terms of uh, understanding, you know, the food economy and the grain economy. So first, I want to just say that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, being from New Orleans uh, until recently, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bellegarde Bakery, but, you know, when I grew up in New Orleans, there really wasn't that kind of uh, bread culture in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about grains and talking about grains. It was more, I mean, New Orleans is, in, in my humble opinion, the food capital of the, of the, I almost said the world, and I might be right, but definitely the country. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we're just, we're just so you know, creative in the way that we cook food. And, you know, I worked as a cook for a while and as a baker, um, you know, I started baking in New Orleans and, and kind of always thinking about how to impart my, you know, culture and, you know, my passions into the bread I make. New Orleans has a, a very deep history with, uh, you know, Honduras, which is where my parents are from. And, and that's due to essentially the standard fruit company, you know, Dole, essentially, right? They, they had a banana trade uh, way back when, and, and they essentially made plantations in Honduras and, and you know, sent the bananas over to New Orleans. So that's what kind of created this connection between 
New Orleans and Honduras. And, you know, um, my, my dad is, is essentially a black Honduran, right? He, his ancestors, um, his, his birth father is actually Jamaican. Um, so his, his birth father by blood is, is Jamaican. And he uh, immigrated to uh, Honduras to work on these plantations to help, uh, the, you know, the banana fields um, and help those, uh, you know, fruit get sent to New Orleans. So that's kind of how, you know, that's where the, the connection of like my, my culture and, and if you see in the book, you'll, you know, I, I tried to make it kind of, uh, clear that that's the, <laughs> that that's just like where I come from by, um, infusing those flavors into, into the, into the products I make. And, you know, the, the, the bananas foster, I mean, just specifically that recipe, obviously that's, that's a, that's a dessert that's, um, you know, it was created in New Orleans. I, I think it was, I don't want to quote myself, but the Brennans or one of those, one of those families kind of created that table side dessert where they flambe the, uh, uh, you know, the, the bananas. And I was just thinking of another way to make a nice and rich bread that wasn't something, you know, of, of, uh, of the traditional European model of bread. And, you know, I'm just slowly trying to learn how to you know, break the mold in terms of the naming conventions that we have for bread. Um, it's, it's, I think that this book is just the introduction for what I'm really going to write about at some point. And, you know, you know, you'll see the book still has a ciabatta recipe. It's still got a focaccia recipe. It's still got, um, you know, things that are appealing to the masses, uh, you know, so I, and again, like I said, I'm a little young in the game. And as I do more research and do more, uh, you know, traveling, hopefully one day, <laughs> one day and, uh, you know, understand the grain economy, not just in the South of the United States, but in Latin America, um, I think I'll really be able to try to uplift the, you know, the, the profile of what it means to make bread in, in Latin America and the South. Okay. That's a great intro. So now we're going to start asking some questions, uh, Going back again to some uh, New York and Mid-Atlantic history, um, let's start with Levada. Can you paint a picture of New York or New Amsterdam in the 17th century in terms of who is living there and in what ways was the population more diverse than one might imagine? The Dutch West India Company, well, first of all, life in Holland was really good. Let's just go there. Because once the land is claimed, the company actually has a hard time getting colonists because life in Holland is good. So the first were here were actually Walloons, and then other Dutch came and stayed. Many of our founding fathers of the larger estates were arrived as sailors or soldiers or workers and then got into the fur trade, and then from the fur trade worked their way up. Uh, but trading, um, there's a great book by Dr. Simbok Kim, and he talks about the difference between how the British look at land and the Dutch look at land. Like the British come to the New World and they look to build their wealth off land. The Dutch come to the New World and say, well, we're going to build ships, we're going to put some mills around, and we're going to immediately start trading because that's really the deal is. So they don't even focus on the land until. Um, they, like I said, they take the fur out. But people are coming here through Holland. Even though they may not be native Dutch, they come through Holland because of the religious wars that are happening in Europe. So that's why we end up with the French Huguenot here. That's why we end up with the Sephardic Jews here. Um, so, and it becomes a big trading hub. 
right? So as people are coming in and out and around, we have one of the natural, largest natural deep harbors and the Hudson River will take ships to this day all the way up to Albany. So it is this whole world trading hub. I mean, the Dutch are trading everywhere with every culture. They're controlling the spice trade and you know they're focusing on the land. So they end up, some families end up buying large tracts of land. And when I talk about large tracts of land, you know, most people are familiar with Mount Vernon, Washington's estate in the South. And so that was 8,000 acres, right? That's a lot of land. But his cohort here in New York, Robert Livingston, Livingston Manor is 160,000 acres. Wow. So they are, you know, you know, Phillipsburg Manor and what is now Lower Westchester was 52,000 acres. Van Cortland Manor right above that, 86,000 acres. But they're not working that as one big chunk. And the company and the British government says, hey, it's your responsibility to get people to settle that land. So they actually do ad campaigns all over Europe. And so you have all these Northern Europeans coming and they take these large estates and they break them down into smaller farms. Uh, and when we say manor, really think medieval manor system. These guys are lords of the manor. Their tenants are basically serfs. They're paying their rent with wheat, with wood, with other things that can be traded. They're buying things from the company, you know, the pots and pans they need or whatever they need. They're buying it from their landlord uh, with wheat as a, a way of changing like Phillipsburg Manor and still has an example of a working grist mill. It was working a number of years ago. They're restoring it now. But when that mill, which was run by an enslaved man named Caesar was in full operation, that was 5,000 pounds of flour a day. So this is serious business. They were running two sets of millstones all the time. So when Amy told me about that cache of millstones, you know, we think in terms of that, yeah, maybe it's been ballast in the ships, but you can like all over New York, New Jersey, dig a hole, you can dig a rock or you could dig up a millstone because they were so common. Um, and a lot of the stones are actually French stones, I believe. Um, so it's a very, so it's a mixed population of people coming here to settle and get wealthy and all of that. And so we are from the very beginning, we are an international hub and we're focused on trade and business. Lovato, one thing I read about you when you were you first really jumping into this, you started working at Cortland Manor and you were working with a 17th century Dutch style uh, hearths. Hearth, yeah, a jamless. Um, yeah, I, when I became a public historian, um, I was working at Van Cortlandt Manor in Croton-on-Hudson. It's one of the properties of the historic Hudson Valley. So they, um, my career with them, which lasted a little over 16, about, about 16 years, was half at Van Cortlandt Manor and then down the road at Phillipsburg Manor. So these two large pieces of land are separated by the Croton River. Uh, Phillipsburg Manor went from Spiten Dival Creek, which is where uh, the Bronx starts, all the way up to the Croton River. And then Van Cortlandt's property went from the Croton River up to Anthony's Nose, which is the point of land right at the foot of the Bear Mountain Bridge. So they, um, I was fortunate that at that time you could still cook on the hearth at Van Cortlandt Manor. So it's both school groups, public groups, public tours, educational programs for students and for teachers, private dinners. 
Um, so I've done a huge range of cooking on the jamless and have worked on a lot of historic hearts that aren't available anymore. The cost of the buildings and the artifacts that they contained all over our region have expanded to a point where live fire is just not allowed in very many places anymore because we just can't afford to lose the history. So I'm very fortunate that I've been doing this work long enough that uh, I had that experience. No, that, that's really great. And, and Amy, you know, um, for you, everything about you is grain growers, maltsters, millers, bakers, and history. Um, do you want to weigh in on uh, more about that, that time? Well, I'm just learning about that time. And um, because it really wasn't on my radar. And it's amazing. There's, a, there's, there's incredible books to, to look at. Um, like the island at the center of the world I mentioned. And then um, there's, I'm, my brain is jumping ahead to another American era that had a great flower development um, that I never read about, but that's linked to um, commodities, specifically coffee. And another book I found is called The Reinvention of the Atlantic Slave Trade. And there's a big linkage between Richmond, Virginia and uh, coffee and the development of a specific flower technology. Uh, so by there, there was a competition after maybe Levada knows the year, but after a certain point, Richmond was competing with mid-Atlantic flour to get flour down to bakers in Brazil. In Rio, there were these uh, European-style bakers, and a uh, flour that went to Brazil, I've read, is um, it always went to the bakeries and not to people's homes. So if you look at the traditions of baking in Brazil, uh, it's an interesting way to, to hopscotch over to the idea of Brian's New World Sourdough because, you know, what the idea that we're thinking of in uh, European-style hearth-baked breads, the sourdough everybody was making at home during the pandemic, what they were going for is a European-style hearth-baked bread. That's thought of as the American bread now, but really it's just something that we borrowed. Um, and it's if really exciting. Yes, please, Levada. If I may, one of the things that people don't really consider, like we are so used to a modern oven, but baking takes a lot of wood. You have to remember these are brick beehive ovens. To fire that oven to get it hot enough to bake bread, that means that you have to burn a fire, a large fire, inside that oven for a minimum of four hours. So people are not baking bread every day. And if you're in an urban environment, to have that kind of flame going is dangerous because a lot of these houses were made of wood or there was wood decoration on them. So in urban centers like Manhattan or New Amsterdam, um, and then in Albany, there were commercial bakers and there were uh, baking guilds. 
bread is the major carb of all of the Europeans that come here. So when we talk about our daily bread, that's something that, and it takes a lot of work to make bread. I mean, if you are looking at the recipes from the 17th century, you know, I love the recipes now where you're starting with like three cups of flour. Well, forget that. I mean, you're starting <laughs> with 15 pounds of flour, you know, and all of this is handwork. You know, when we talk about the enslaved women or the bakers, you know, people have to knead that kind of bread. They are strong and they are muscular. But so it's a combination of things. But the sheer cost of baking bread is expensive when you think in terms of the wood that's needed to do that project. Absolutely. Um, and so a lot of, you know, so all of the baking that we're doing now, that really, you know, that, that daily loaf of bread being baked in the home, that doesn't come into play until we get into the 19th century and iron stoves. Right. So you and have a much smaller environment to create the heat you need for bread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I live in Troy, New York, where a lot of those stoves were made, you know, again, with the technological innovations and the march of progress. But it's so it's so hard for for us to really imagine the past. Lavada, what, what kind of loaves of bread? I mean, just the shape. They're round. They're, they're, they're round. more like a French bread. Mm -hmm. um, they're more like a French bread. And when you look at the wonderful thing about trying to envision food history is the photographs of the time are the Dutch master paintings. That's because great. they're about <laughs> realism. So you can go online to the Rice Museum and look at the Dutch master paintings. Right now, at least before they closed, the Met actually had a Dutch master painting exhibit um, up that's going to be hopefully still there. Maybe they'll be able to extend it because it's out of their collection. But you see the round loaves of bread. You see they're, they're like a, a, a French roll not even a baguette. I mean, you're talking individual rolls that then went into a 21-inch napkin that was used on the table. Um, so bread is really common. You know, we have these big, beautiful, artistic uh, loaves of bread, but you'll see like the pretzels, you'll see all of the different holiday breads in the paintings. You'll see the studded breads with the caraway seeds and the fennel seeds and um all of the spice added into them, but even things like gingerbreads, you know, some of those, unless it's going to be a thin cookie to get it to rise, you have to use the yeast. So that presence of beer and bread is always together until we get into com uh, chemical leavenings in the 19th, well, late 18th century, 19th century, until we can get into pearl ash and saltetas or baking soda or baking powder. If you want something to rise, it's either going to be egg or yeast. So and the easiest way to get the yeast is really from the beer. Lovato, so they're hand in hand. Do you know about some of the, uh, the other old like New England breads, like brown bread? Um, That's a steamed bread, actually. So that you can do a steamed bread much easier than you can do a hearth baked bread. And so that's a bread that's made on a smaller scale, right? So that's something you can do quickly and easily. When you get into your cornbreads or... Um, that's coming from the Native Americans, again, done in a very small batch. But you have to understand, you know, we forget they are just really bringing European baking history, which is long and deep in their cultures, 
here. So the first thing they do is like build the oven, build everything you need to transfer your culture from one point A to point B and just continue it. Amy, so let me get let me get Brian in now. Brian, um, so you're, you're getting inspired, I'm sure. But uh, tell us a little about, about your inspirations um, with the book that you you wrote. Well, I mean, it, it it's um, <laughs> besides the basic things, just like culinary traditions growing up, I think, you know, kind of playing into what what you guys are talking about right now. It's more you know, wheat, wheat is not indigenous to Central America or Latin America, really. So, you know, what, what happens is that crop is brought to these people and, you know, they look around and they see things like coconuts or they, you know, whatever it is that's around and they start to make, they start to kind of create their own bread culture. And I think that's what really inspires me is, you know, because, just because the grain was brought to the land from a different part of the world, um, doesn't necessarily mean, and you know, and the French is the, the the French brought. I mean, the baguette itself, you know, that idea of kind of a long bread. I, I, I from what I think really happened is French were there, and they were like, "Hey, this is this is a long bread that we make," you know, and then they bounced right, and then you know, people in Mexico were like, "Oh, well, we make you know, let's make a long bread too, but let's make it with beer, let's make it with lime, let's make it with a little egg, and let's bake it." You know, they bake it in a wood fired oven. That's a birote, and it might kind of look like a baguette, but it's not really a baguette anymore. And over time, you know, a, 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 a distinct bread culture forms within all of Latin America, where, you know, in, in Venezuela, it might be called a bolillo. And, you know, they might use a different process to get it to that point. And so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years can go by. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got maybe inspiration from the, the, the French people that were there or the Spaniards that were there. Um, but you have a whole, a completely different product. You even have certain parts of Central America where you can grow some wheat. It's not the best quality. Um, I mean, you know, Honduras, for example, relies on the United States to, to kind of bring in some kind of commercial, some kind of probably low quality wheat. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there is, are there issues with the quality of the grain that is, is accessible in a lot of Latin America? Yes. But uh, you know, the, the distinct ingredients and the way they've kind of carried their influence and created, you know, their own bread culture, um, which is which is booming. And, you know, there's just so many different types of bread now in, in that part of the world that that's really what drives me, because that's where that's where my family comes from. My, you know, you know, a fourth of my dad's side's Jamaican. So I think about hard dough. I think about things like that. I think about coconut bread. Um, and I try to celebrate them as much as um, other breads are celebrated in, in this country. And Brian, your book is The New World Sourdough. Correct. Um, we're we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Vertera. Impressively versatile, stylishly sustainable, environmentally disposable dinnerware from Fallen Leaves. Vertera is a mission-driven company focused on making environmentally responsible single-use products. Founded in 2006 on the belief that every culinary creation deserves a beautiful, sustainably crafted foundation. Vertera reclaims earthly discards like fallen leaves and tree scraps to design elegant, disposable dinnerware that elevates the look of food presentation. In short, 
a beautiful disposable plate that can go with your food to a composting facility. The team from Verterra recently made a huge pivot with their factories and started producing masks, gloves, sanitizer, and other PPE that food businesses need to safely reopen. Learn more at Verterra.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's that time of year. It's summer membership drive, so check us out, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. We have a special show recording in June 2020 right now. Uh, what came first, beer or bread? This time we're talking about bread and uh, some, some history of, of mills and, and other things in, in the New York area and beyond. Um, so, Amy, uh, Amy Halloran, uh, you're an expert on, on grains and... And uh, you have a great book about pancakes because we're talking about rising bread. But what about flatbreads and, and breads that were cooked in skillets? Sure. Well, what I want to know from Levada is did the Dutch pancake tradition, which is just, it's just about, you know, the Dutch eat pancakes like they breathe air. Um, was that over here? Was there evidence in New York of of their love of pancakes. There is not a manuscript cookbook available in New York from the 17th century that does not have a pancake, a soft waffle, a hard waffle, a bread recipe in it. And they're not the risen pancakes that we have now. They are crepes. And um, they even have one from... um, one of Peter Rose, uh, who's a Dutch culinary historian, translated a 17th century book that was brought here called The Sensible Cook. And there's a receipt, that's what they were called in period, uh, for recipes for the best kind of pancakes. And actually it's made with water. And they specifically tell you don't add milk to the flour because it makes it tough. Amazing. So, yeah, so all of that, I mean, this is where I really encourage people to get on um, the internet and go explore the Rice Museum and other Dutch master paintings because all of that bread culture, from the breads that were made for St. Nicholas Day, um, the Swedish bread, braided breads for St. Lucia, uh, all of those breads are here. And when I was listening to Brian talk about um, the bread culture that develops in the diaspora, it is because of the trade. Wheat doesn't grow well in that heat. So it's grown here in our area, but there they're growing sugar. So they're going to trade because both crops require large acreage. And so they're going to trade it back and forth. One of the challenges about particularly the Dutch period um, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that I want to like give you a bibliography of books, but the problem is they don't exist. We really have only had and are still gaining access to a lot of this information because it was in Old Dutch. And they're, like nobody can read the language. And we don't really think about that. Like the French that was spoken in the 17th century is not the French that is being spoken today. The English that was spoken then is not the English that we do today. And another thing that's become challenging around uh, historic research is the fact that a lot of people can't read cursive anymore. 
So when I go to look at recipe books, I'm literally handling 17th century documents. I'm literally handling 18th century documents. And I can read cursive, but a lot of our new historians can't read the language. And some of the documents are becoming so fragile. I mean, history is giving us so much, but also hurting us because a lot of these recipes and these recipe books are falling apart because iron gall ink, the popular ink of the period, is literally eating the paper, literally eating the paper. So we're, we're really challenged by that. But you can trace all of the bread culture that you find throughout South America, Mexico, throughout uh, the Caribbean, the West Indies, straight to the 17th century and New York and the wheat trade. Levada, that's a great overview because now I know why I could never figure out how to do all my homework in, uh, in classics. <laughs> I had a good excuse. I couldn't read it. So... Yeah, um, <laughs> but I would encourage people, you know, the New Netherland Institute, uh, the leading uh, research arm for the study of this period has a great website. So just in this Netherland, no S, um, and to go there and to, you know, when the museums open up and when the historic sites open up, there are Dutch properties all over New York. Go visit and ask because the information is there. And I've learned a lot and I'm a pastry worker and we don't even think about, you know, the whole, we talk about bread, but pastry was everywhere. I mean, like the pastry of the day was puff pastry. So the enslaved cooks were making pounds and pounds of puff pastry every day. So I've had to work on my bread because I work pastry, which is a lighter hand. So in that time you mentioned, you know, it's, it's slaves and, and serfs and workers, um, how were certain jobs assigned or, or how are certain, like were slaves only doing certain jobs in certain areas and, and other people were doing other jobs? You know, how was labor and the, the, the culture of the workers, you know, differentiated? Okay, so we're going to start by bringing your um, reference up to current scholarly language. They are enslaved, not slaves. And the owner is not a master. He is an enslaver. And the enslaved were the labor, period. We do have indentured servants here, but the, one of the trade commodities of the Dutch were West, West African slaves. So when we talk about enslavement here, we often get skewed because most of us have this vision of a Southern plantation where you have like a large property and hundreds of slaves being owned by a wealthy family. Again, think about Phillipsburg Manor. The Phillips family owned about 50 enslaved, but they didn't have them all at one property. But if you have 52,000 acres broken into small farms and every other farmer has an enslaved person or two or five, you have a lot of enslaved people on that land. They are so common that our indentured, you know, people who were choosing to be indentured and choosing what part of the colonies they would come to often wouldn't come to New York because they couldn't get any work. And like, even when the Palatines were enslaved at Livingston Manor, once they became free as a tenant farmer or as a new landowner, they bought slaves. And the Dutch West India Company in New Jersey and in different places actually would give you 80 acres and an enslaved person. So all of the work, the labor, the kitchen, the help, everything is an enslaved, and every enslaved person has to learn a trade. So you're buying an enslaved woman, you have to bring her into your 
European kitchen and teach her how to cook. That's an adventure that's not really pleasant for either of the people involved. So there is still a lot of work to be done around the enslaved period, but we let's get clear, New York's labor force were enslaved Africans, and they most were directly imported from Africa, from Congo, Angola, and Madagascar. So. And that's up to what point, Levada? Like uh, until we get to like 1790. Mm-hmm. Enslavement ends in New York. The first enslaved are brought here, um, or sold here in 1625 in New York, and enslavement doesn't end in New York legally until 1827. But until 1840, if you were visiting from a Southern state, you could bring your enslaved in up to, I think it's six months, six or nine months before they are deemed free. You know, let, let me jump, jump in. Um, a lot of other people have been considering, you know, the, the, the reality of, of enslaved people. And um, recently, a, a friend, he's a writer in, in England, uh, unearth the story, which wasn't that hidden. There's a brewery called Green King. It's, it was a big brewery in, in England. And uh, there's a lot of information about around 1800, early 1800s, even though there, there were people, um, you know, in the abolition movement around him, he was a, a proponent and owned many slaves in the West Indies at a plantation. Um, I, it is more of that coming out now? Because honestly, like I've read Howard Zinn's People History of of the United States, but we I've never heard any of this like early colonial history before. Well, I will even say that, you know, one of the things that people even don't realize, like the manumission society, the abolitionist society that was started in New York, most of the people owned slaves, like John Jay owned enslaved, and he was a founding father of the abolitionist society and did not free his enslaved. Is it coming out more? Yes. And here's the deal that everyone just needs to accept. Enslaved history is based on our educational system. What we know, we learned in school. There is not a subject we learned in school that we fully learned, no matter what it was. It was a blip. If you were studying English literature, you maybe read a chapter, you may have read a book, but you didn't read the great depth and breadth of English literature. History is the same way. To get that information out, it is really taught and has been until very recently, and recently is like within the last seven years. It has been taught around the 19th century. It has been taught around the antebellum in the South, Civil War, and Reconstruction. We really did not, for the most part, most people did not learn about enslavement in the North. It just wasn't there. So a lot of people are really frustrated, and we deal with this in the museum settings all the time, because people are processing, you know, we have owned our knowledge for so long. And then people like me are standing there in front of you telling you what you know is not true. So people get really defensive. And I think that that's playing into what is happening in our country right now. A lot of people really just honestly don't know the depth and breadth of enslavement in this country. We're talking 400 years of enslavement in the United States. That's a long time. And it wasn't that long ago. African-Americans in this country have been enslaved longer than they have been free. 
And that's shocking. But when we really look at it, was it a one-off? Not in our area. It was really, really common. Was it nice? No. Were the Dutch nice slave owners? No. Nobody was. And that's, that's hard. So we have a lot of relearning to do. We have a lot of expanding to do. And that is even those of us who work in the field because, again, for New York, the books that we need have not been published. So when we're going in, reading documents of the time, reading these court cases, reading these first accounts, reading discoveries in libraries and in church basements, um, we have to process that. We, we as individuals have to process that. My colleagues and I are always struggling with that. But we have to remember, history is a gray area because it's always changing. And let's, let's just go, changing. I want to go back just to the cooking part of it. So back then, 17th century Dutch colonial or, you know, slaves were working, whether they were in bakeries or kitchens for wealthy people. Um, there must have been some realization that there were slaves that were very intelligent and very skilled at, at jobs. Um, how do you make sense of all that? Well, I look at it like, a, first of all, you have to deal with the fact that everyone shows up, no matter what their training is, they're showing up with PTSD in the worst way. And then if you start training somebody to cook and they just don't get it, they're not considered human, they're considered property. So you just sell them and you get somebody else to do the job. And you have to keep doing it until it clicks. And then at some point, for me, um, I truly believe that to survive sane, one's innate creativity comes into play. So if you're a cook, your just sense of creativity and trying to do the best you can creates a better dish, creates a better loaf of bread, more skill. You know, and all of that has to come into play. Whatever you're doing, you have to do the best you can because the punishment is real. So it's not, you know, you, it's a hard, mm, it's hard to really figure out. But some skills like the cook, it, it, there has to be a level of creativity in it because I always say there are two masters. The first master is the fire. You're working with a living, living, breathing element. And if you're not paying attention, you can get really hurt. But we don't have records of, you know, hundreds of women suddenly bursting into flames. Um, so there is that skill. But it is. Um, and New York was known for beautiful food. Remember, this is pre-restaurant culture. So how someone displays their wealth, how someone displays their culture, particularly in the upper classes, is at their dining table. If you're bringing porcelain in from China, you're not going to have a slop on that plate. If you are a part of your table setting is this beautiful round roll tucked neatly in this starched white napkin, you're not going to have somebody making lopsided bread, right? So that skill, that elegance is always there. And that comes with just experience. Lovada, can you name one or two uh, dishes from that time that that you would say you would credit to a slave enslaved person having either created or ma made uh, something as special? Not in our area. And that's one of our challenges because they are not cooking African 
food. They're cooking high-end European food. And when we look at the letters that speak of the beautiful food that appears on the table, it is all high-end British, even when we know the cook was enslaved. So we don't have, unlike the South, unlike Louisiana, and, and that region where you have the gumbos and all of those beautiful rice dishes where you see the presence of Africa in the food, we don't have that here. What we have is the skill of the enslaved cook producing high-end European food. That's great. Well, and this is going and to... Be Excuse me. You can finish. Sorry. And that's because of the way the enslaved were held. Because it's one person here and one person there. And I want to just go to Brian now. So, Brian, um, with that uh, being said, you know, your family, the connection of Honduras and New Orleans, um, you want to say anything about that? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot to wrap my head around, by the way. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just learning. I'm just kind of a student, you know, here. And I'm really kind of just thankful to soak all of this information in. And uh, I think you do see lots of traditions blend together. And, and, you know, we talk about beautiful rice dishes. We talk about, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, for me, it's just, it's a thing of passion to to start to kind of understand these things. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope that my work can kind of get, do justice to what, you know, the past has, has been. And I, and I think that's for me, the most important thing to do as I kind of trailblaze my own weird little path from a baker to a blogger, to a writer, to, to still a baker and, and really respect the traditions and respect the cultures that, um, have molded me and not for, and not forget so easily, um, you know, talking about 400 years of slavery. It's, 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 it's almost like, you know, when, when people say that it's just, it's just a number. I mean, people will say that all the time, you know, they were enslaved for 400 years and no one really kind of lets that seep into to their minds of what that means. And, and I think all of our traditions and cultures and, and like where we come from, I think sometimes it's easy to forget exactly what it took to get to where we are. Um, and, and I think that's just where that's, this is the, you know, this is the direction I want to take myself. I don't quite know how I'm going to get there, but um, certainly learning and listening and reading is, is probably step one. Well, that's great. And I'm going to keep following you. We're going to have to cut it off short. Artisan Brian. Um, one last thing with Amy. So, this has really been informative, and I feel like it's just the first of many conversations about this. I have a beer in front of me because we do drink beer on the show. <laughs> it's from KCBC in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Robot Fish IPA Citrus Smash. Um, I was just thinking about, I'd like to see a lot more stories about this Levada um, going back, you know, giving credit to the, the enslaved people that uh, grew the grain and either malted it or milled it and did all the other work because it's important to see a, a real picture of our history so we can understand it. Even where I'm from, um, I, I'm, I'm from a place of, built of uh, shoe mills and textile mills in New England, and the whole generation of, of, of people that came there in the 1890s weren't, weren't, weren't represented in history when I was a kid. Um, and, when, and during the time of COVID, I saw the people that were still working, whether they were healthcare workers or their delivery people, they're all black and brown people in New York City. So you look around, you, you, you see who's forgotten, but you see who's still doing all the work. 
Um, it's been really great. Amy, one last thing. You want to say anything else about um, this show? Well, I think that Brian is already doing the work of thinking about grains and where they are and where we are and how to be true to a food tradition with ingredients. You know, Brian, the way you write about your mother and her tortillas, uh, that's, that's the carriage of personal history that has everything to do with the histories that I'm barely beginning to learn and that Levada has been steeped in. So I think that your book is a dialogue and your work is a dialogue between what we are doing and what we can do and how everybody can, can do better and do more. Okay, thank you. So we're going to close out one more time. Everyone, please just say your name and either the book you've written or the job you have. Let's start with Amy. Amy Halloran. I wrote The New Bread Basket, and I'm a big ambassador for flour. Brian? Uh, Brian Ford. Um, I wrote New World Sourdough. Great. Lovada? Uh, Lovada Nahan, culinary historian and interpreter for African-American history for New York State Department of Parks. You guys have been so great. Thanks so much for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, and head engineer, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.